Welcome to episode 117 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by a guest commentator, uh, Patrick Gray. Patrick is the host of the Risky Business Podcast, which is a more technical and less political um, uh uh, cybersecurity podcast and the best of breed as far as I can tell. And since I was a regular listener, I called him up and said, uh, we should, uh, we should appear on each other's podcasts. And, uh, uh, I've already, uh, appeared on his and he is now appearing on, uh, mine. I suppose if you, uh, subscribe to both, you're going to get a little sick of hearing the two of us, uh, say much the same things, uh, <laughs> uh Patrick. Uh, uh, but I promise this will, this will be the last time for a while. Uh, uh, also with us uh, is Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now with our New York office. Uh, uh, Alan Cohn, who was formerly with uh, DHS as head of strategy and second in charge of uh, policy, now uh, at Steptoe here in Washington. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for coming back to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's ju- just jump right in. Uh, uh, you know, the Home Depot case um, has been chugging along. This is the case, um, uh, rather interestingly, brought by the banks against Home Depot, and it'll probably be the big uh, money uh, uh, claim of the, uh, all the claims, uh, uh, saying well, we had to reissue a whole bunch of cards because you screwed up, uh, and we want you to pay us for all that card reissuing effort, uh, uh, and uh, Whatever lawyers they hired to uh, uh, to bring their claim, they, they sure got that judge to uh, come around on a lot of issues, didn't they, Michael? Yeah, they did. Um, the, the main issue of whether the banks had standing, I think, is not that surprising, because unlike consumers who often can't show any actual financial harm when there's a breach, no, these because guys no clearly, one has engaged, clearly no one has engaged in identity theft or, or fraud, um, financial institutions can show real financial harm because they have to replace the cards uh, for the people whose, whose uh, credit card numbers were stolen. So they've, they've um, repeatedly succeeded in establishing standing. But to me, there were three aspects of this decision that were really interesting uh, and helped the banks in this case because they're the plaintiffs. I think they're going to be uh, harmful to banks and other uh, defendants in data breach cases in the future, though. The first issue was the, the economic loss rule. There's, there's this rule under many states' tort law, uh, which says that you can't recover on a negligence claim if you suffer only economic losses and not some sort of personal injury or uh, property damage. Uh, but the court said there's an exception to the economic loss rule uh, in Georgia, which is the, the state uh, in which the case was brought, uh, if there's some independent duty that was violated. And the court said in Georgia there's a general duty to all the world not to subject, subject them to an unreasonable risk of harm. So that basically just takes the economic that just takes the economic it, loss. Uh, it does rule away with the economic loss yeah. rule. Yeah. Yeah, because that means anybody could bring a negligence claim because that's the, basically the definition of negligence is that you violated a, a duty of care to the world. Um, the, the second thing was the court said uh, allowed a negligence per se claim to proceed. Negligence per se basically says if you violate a statute or a regulation that establishes a standard of conduct. And that's negligence per se. And here the plaintiff's claim for negligence per se was based on 
Section 5 of the FTC Act, which oh, prohibits unfair deceptive what? <laughs> practices. So, no, really, this is, the, the, the idea that there's a standard there is preposterous. So we, we've talked about that for years now. The FTC just has a bunch of brochureware. So there you go. So it's not only the FTC that can bring claims on, on the basis of some unknown uh, standard of conduct, but now plaintiffs in, in civil suits can as well, at least in the state of Georgia. By saying, well, they're, they're bringing a claim under this standard of don't act unfairly uh, under Section 5, and then I assume they're going to take all of the brochures and dump them into the record and say, you didn't do everything in the brochures. You'd think. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not sure what what they're planning to do, but that that's what I would do if I were the plaintiffs uh, yep. in this case. Um, but it really is it's something. It's ex- expanding the 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 scope of the FTC's effects to civil litigation in a way I think that that goes much farther than has been the case before. And then the last aspect I found interesting was the courts added a, a declaratory judgment claim, basically saying. Home Depot still doesn't have adequate security. Therefore, we want the court to issue a declaratory judgment saying that that Home Depot is in continuing breach uh, of the law. And 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 uh, uh, paired with that was a claim for injunctive relief. So they want the tell they want the court to tell Home Depot what to do to fix its security going forward. Well, maybe at last the court will be able to figure out what all the brochures from the FTC say so that they can write them down in one place and say, this is what you need to do. Uh, uh, it, this is a kind of remarkable, and I, I do think the, the banks uh, are going to regret having made so much uh, uh, plaintiff-favorable law in this case. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely uh, one of the, the lessons that will be learned coming out of this case. Uh, the other, the other a bit of litigation that uh, uh, made the news that has, or that we thought was going to have some impact on on these breach cases was the Supreme Court's decision uh, on standing, uh, which I mean, it, it, it's dignifying it to call it a decision. It's kind of a, a, a meandering rumination followed by a remand, right? Yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, everybody thought Spokio was going to be a really important standing decision. Uh, it was shaping up to be that. Um, and the, the specific issue was whether you can establish Article Three standing based solely on the violation of some statutory requirement or statutory right, um, you know, even in the absence of any actual uh, tangible harm. Uh, Spokio involved the Fair Credit Reporting Act, but depending on how the court decided it, people thought it would have a lot of implications for uh, lots of other laws that create statutory rights, including some privacy laws like the Wiretap Act, the Stored Communications Act, the Video Privacy Protection Act. Uh, but the court basically um, shied away from, from really reaching any decision by essentially pretending that the, that the, uh, that the Court of Appeals didn't address whether you needed to show concrete harm where you have a violation of a statutory right. Uh, and so it remanded to, to, with instructions to the Court of Appeals to address whether there was any concrete harm. And, um, you know, you read Justice Ginsburg's dissent and she said, wait a second, the plaintiffs did raise a concrete harm here. And the Ninth Circuit specifically said you don't have to show any concrete harm when you have a violation of a statutory right. But the majority of the Supreme Court just basically pretended that neither one of those things was the case. And I think the, the issue here was, with the death of Justice Scalia, there was not going to be a majority either way uh, to find that you needed concrete harm in addition to a violation of a statute or not. And so they cobbled together this six-person majority um, that basically said nothing. 
Yeah, uh, so, and it, it sounds like this will go back to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit will will say it will staple Justice Ginsburg's opinion uh, uh, to their last opinion and say, no, we really did say it, and uh, we meant it, and here here it is, and then it'll be um, up for cert again. Yeah, I think the I think the plaintiff will win in this case uh, before the Ninth Circuit, but the but uh, the, you know the Supreme Court, unless there's there's a Ninth Justice. Um, when the time comes around, we'll probably just likely deny cert. Yep. So, so, the, so the case essentially goes away. Yeah. Uh, well, I have some sympathy for uh, uh, Justice Alito trying to write something like that uh, to say something uh, that sounds like an opinion uh, and still remand rather than just uh, affirm by an equally divided court. Uh, but uh, oh yeah, it was, you know, it was interesting to read though because you could almost you could almost see. The paragraphs that were inserted uh, to appeal to Justice Sotomayor, for instance, and then you could see the paragraphs that were that were inserted to appeal to uh, the Chief Justice, or, or you know, or, or another uh, uh, justice that was on the side of limiting standing. And so it just had this um, this Jekyll and Hyde feel to it, going back and forth in a way that was was uh, was pretty confusing, but but. I think the the reason for it was evident. Well, it's going to be like reading the uh, party platforms of both parties uh, now that if they're uh, uh, largely taken over or partially taken over by insurgents, uh, it, it's going to go. It's going to be a ping pong game of uh, uh, what can be inserted. Uh, so I was I was critical of the uh, uh, the court in the Home Depot case and uh, the FTC for not being clear of what they wanted. Uh, Alan, the Defense Department has a rule now that says this is what we want defense contractors to do. Is it clearer or am I kidding myself? No, I think it is clearer. Um, and the Defense Department has kind of been more out in front of uh, of other agencies and saying, no, this is this is what we intend. This well, is they're what the we only want. ones that are actually regulating. They, they they actually still believe in regulation, and they, they if you want their money, then you're going to take their regulation too. Yes, oh, well, I'd say in the in the executive agency side, and the independent regulators are kind of right. moving they're, along. They're, uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, we've talked about them on previous uh, episodes. They're kind of chugging along with uh, with trying to be more specific about what they want. The Defense Department's the first of the real. Big cabinet departments to right. say, no, this is what I, this is what we want. And it's an interesting rule. Of course, this is the final rule. Um, and we've, we've, uh, this, this rulemaking has been going on for, for years. Um, and, uh, with commentary, um, there are some, you know, the, the, the rule on its face and the, and the defense department says this is really meant to be the basics. Um, you know, there were comments <clears throat> about where's encryption, where are, where's penetration testing. Where's training requirements, uh, things of that nature. And the Defense Department, re- really to their credit, said, look, this is just the basic. This is the very basics that okay. we expect anybody to do. And if you read through the, the, the safeguarding, uh, security controls that they expect, they are really the basics. They are the, the kinds of things that once you review the, the NIST framework and the ISO 27000 standards and the CIS money, this is kind of this is the this is the basics. And I have to say, I mean, I often say that um, it's very hard to write regulations that stay up to date. But as I as I think about it, um, the stuff you have to do 
it almost the things that you have to do today you're going to have to do five years from now ten years from now uh, it, it, the real problem is keeping up to date means adding stuff not so much taking stuff off yes and I guess that's where you where there's an interesting question about these issues of encryption and other things of whether it's not quite clear whether there's going to be additive requirements or they are you know the solution today and not tomorrow there was an interesting back and forth some of the uh, commenters said that these are design standards, not performance standards. The Defense Department said, no, these are performance standards. These are kind of the basic things you're always going to have to be doing regardless of, you know, in what way that uh, so you let me, do So let that. me ask, do they say run an antivirus uh, program? <laughs> uh, because uh, uh, if, if there were anything I were going to take off the list, uh, and Patrick, uh, uh, feel free to jump in here, it might have been that, uh, especially given all of the security problems that have turned up in AV uh, uh, products where you're basically facing the world with a product that has its own set of vulnerability. Uh, there's well, two provisions. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Patrick. Well, I mean, the antivirus thing is um, uh, particularly horrible for us on, you know, who are closer to the technology side because it really is just a facepalm moment every time these bugs come out. The most recent round that were found by Tavis Ormandy at Google are just, oh, my God, so horribly, head-slappingly, you know, <laughs> terrible. It's like, uh, you know, 1999 rang and it, uh, it wants its vulnerabilities back. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's... It's not certain that we've actually seen um, many threat groups out there actually attacking AV, but it's kind of beside the point. And I think it's really interesting for me to listen to you guys talking about policy and law um, when fundamentally, I mean, I'm thinking about this, whether it's defence contractors, whether it's Home Depot, whoever it is, um, ultimately the problem that everyone's facing right now is not necessarily about liability. Uh, it's not necessarily about regulation, it's about the fact that as an industry we have an absolutely diabolical skills shortage and, you know, even if you are halfway good uh, as a security practitioner these days, uh, you know, good enough to be, you know, to meaningfully contribute to securing a company's data, chances are you have a, an excellent job offer uh, with either a major bank or a technology brand and you are making... Uh, you know, god awful amounts of money. It would make your, um, you know, <laughs> you'd, you'd raise some eyebrows if you saw some of these letters of offer that go out to some of these technology guys. But, um, you know, that's, that's really the issue. Uh, I think people would find it a lot easier to run secure networks if they had access to the right people. But, uh, they don't because this stuff is very difficult. Um, and I think that's, you know, for, uh, for me, just sitting here listening to, to you guys discussing this, um, uh, this, these issues around liability. Thought, well, you know, if we actually had the correct tools and um, a suitable workforce, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Well, yeah, and and, and you know, we'll we'll get the workforce eventually. There's that there's that joke about the uh, law firm that gets a forensics uh, team's bill and looks at the hourly rates and says, "Wait a minute, you're charging a thousand dollars an hour. That's more than I make, and I'm a lawyer." And the uh, the guy who gave him the bill says, "Yeah, it's more than I made when I was a lawyer." I, 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 we're going to have, have a lot of people uh, switching careers. Uh, in fact, I was just advising Brown University on their executive masters in cybersecurity where they're uh, uh, trying to find people who want to switch careers mid-path. Uh, uh, so if Brown University is on it, it's a, it's a real trend. So, you know, I did – there was um, – along yeah. those lines – uh, you know, we definitely, um, 
are now creating more work for those uh, for those forensic investigators now in the defense industrial base, which is good. That'll that'll keep driving demand. Um, there was one change in these uh, in in the rules that was that was interesting. Um, in that there was a whole one of the bigger pieces of controversy was how to define um, the protected information. Right. And so what they ended up doing at the end was rather than they didn't specify the information, they specified the information systems. So basically and they gave up on trying to trying to divide out the, the stuff that they care about and just said protect yours. This is this is a low enough level that you ought to apply it across the board. What's interesting about that is if you think about some of the interesting technology around micro segmentation and encryption, right. um, which focuses on the data rather than on the systems, it does somewhat make cast a die, and this is, goes to Patrick's point again, that although antivirus is not specifically mentioned, it talks about providing protection from malicious code at appropriate locations within an organizational information system and updating those malicious code protection mechanisms when new releases are available, right. it still does seem to encourage the idea of the protected you know the, the the enclosed system, right? As opposed to other models for uh, for protecting. So, pa- Patrick, I assume that it's still standard advice that the, uh, you can't protect everything, and you need to make sure you need to figure out what you most want to protect, and try to uh, impose additional protections on that uh, uh, that data. Yeah, look, that's absolutely true. But I guess one thing that you've got to remember is most organizations out there, and I'm talking about household brands when I say this, they are so woefully behind that they are not even approaching the point where they can start actually categorizing their information and assigning controls, you know, on a per-need basis. Um, It's really grim out there uh, trying to actually find and retain uh, a security team who can do a good job. It is... Um, you know, it's, it's the one thing that is causing us the most grief, uh, at this point. I mean, you know, perhaps using credit cards isn't, um, such a brilliant idea. Uh, full stop. You know, we might maybe need to look at different, um, transaction models if we're going to get a handle on this because, um, you know, using 16 digits plus, you know, a couple of bits of complementary information as the basis for, you know, <laughs> internet trade, probably not a great idea. Uh, but one note, one further note on um, AV and whatever it is, like uh, however you want to uh, protect data, ultimately you need, you're always going to need something that um, parses uh, content. Now, we often see um, a lot of um, security vulnerabilities affecting things like browsers, and the reason is because they have what we call a high attack surface area. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are riddled with bugs basically because they have to handle a lot of different complicated types of content. The problem is when you are writing security software that also uh, needs to look at uh, – the, the security software also needs to look at everything that the browser can look at. It needs to be able to look at everything your word processor can look at, everything that your spreadsheet can look at. So basically you've got these engineers who are writing uh, inspection code uh, for security software that has to do everything a browser, a word processor, and you know, every sort of office app and whatever – it has to be able to inspect that content and handle that content, and that's where mistakes happen, right? So mm-hmm. security software, I think, according to a uh, survey by Vericode, who do um, uh, automated code scanning, looking for vulnerabilities and things like that, they're a Boston-based uh, uh, company, uh, they routinely find that um, security software is actually the worst uh, in terms of code quality. Um, and we shouldn't be too su- surprised by that, and we shouldn't necessarily point fingers at the industry. It's just that, you know, 
content inspection is very, very difficult, I guess is the point. Yeah, and, and trying to, uh, to be, to be able to understand all of the protocols and all the security risks associated with all of the different uh, files that you have to uh, handle is particularly tricky. Let me raise this one uh, thing because I think it's it's uh, short. Mozilla said, uh, "Well, we need to know about the uh, uh, the various uh, uh, vulnerabilities," uh, and they intervened in a case where the um, the government, the FBI, had gotten access to communications by finding a flaw in Tor. Uh, the defendant, of course, said. Uh, uh, I'd like to gray mail the government, tell me uh, what that flaw was. And then Mozilla said, um, uh, kind of uh, piggybacking on that, well, tell us first because we want to fix uh, anything that is uh, uh, tied to any security vulnerability that we can fix at our end. And the court just uh, ended up throwing out both the uh, request the gray mail request from the defendant and then saying, as I remember, Mozilla, uh, nice try, but um, since uh, we're not going to reveal this to anybody, we don't need to reveal it to you. Is, is that a, sh- a good short summary, uh, Michael? Uh, yes and no. It, it rejected Mozilla's uh, attempt to intervene and and learn information about any, any vulnerabilities in its Firefox uh, browser. And it also rejected the defendant's demand to see the full details about the network investigative technique used by the FBI. But it has not yet ruled on the defendant's motion to dismiss the indictment, uh, ah. given the fact that that the defendant can't get the full details. Uh, the oral argument on that motion is in two days. And I think that the judge's uh, decisions have telegraphed that he is likely to dismiss the indictment. So ultimately, I think the gray mail uh, strategy is, is going to work. So wow. he won't get the, the technical details, but he may, you know, better than that, he'll get his indictment thrown out. Um, that's the way it seems like it's, it's heading right now. Well, this will have to lead to some sort of reform because, you know, and this one's been brewing for a long time because these, you know, these FBI NIT Trojans, um, you know, it used to be that uh, investigators would find a web server on the clear web that was serving up, uh, you know, child exploitation material. Um, they would either put a box in front of that, which would monitor who was visiting that website, or they would actually just seize the logs from the website itself. They would distribute uh, the logs to their law enforcement partners all around the world, uh, like, you know, a, a box in Bulgaria could get taken down, and then, hey, look at these visiting IPs from Australia. That would go to the Australian Federal Police. They would use that information um, to get a warrant, to look at someone's computer and then they would find child exploitation material and, you know, charges would follow. Of course, with the move to, you know, Tor Hidden Services, that's no longer a viable technique. So, you know, in from a technical standpoint, I guess it's not too much different. Um, whether or not you're collecting IP address information from um, uh, uh, from a uh, FBI, you know, I, some people call it a Trojan, I think that's going a little bit too far, uh, from the NIT tool, uh, versus just looking looking through uh, web logs. I suppose we're going from from passive collection of that information to active collection of that information, which in principle doesn't make much of, much of a huge difference. But it's it was always going to be an absolute legal bun fight, and it's um I'm amazed it's taken this long to to get this far. Yeah, well, this one's particularly uh, um, uh, fraught because the FBI ran this service for a while as though it were the proprietor, and, and there's a lot of uh, unease about uh, whether the government should be serving child porn. Stuart, yeah. I do not understand the unease. I do not understand why people are concerned about that. I mean, perhaps you can explain it to me, but if there is a child pornography ring operating, 
Uh, this is no different to what they did with Silk Road. This is no different from what they've done with other on- underground marketplaces or Carter's forums. The FBI has routinely infiltrated um, online credit card fraud forums to a position where they are contributing to the management of these forums. Uh, they shut down the forum. They bust a whole bunch of people. No one ever complains that they're involved in the distribution of credit card material. Uh, there's no in-principle objection there like there is when they're uh, involved in the distribution of, um, uh, of child exploitation material. And I, the only thing that I can think of is because it's a much more emotive topic, it's given people something to jump, jump up and down about. But I, I don't see any other way that they are going to collect information on the visitors to these forums uh, at all, you know, without doing what they've done. I, can you can you help? No, I, I, I think I you're quite right that, that they're that they're doing it because they don't have a choice. Uh, but I think in most of those mm. other cases, uh, my sense is the law enforcement has maybe contributed some ideas, some uh, uh, offered some thoughts, uh, acted like a bad guy, but has tried to avoid actually carrying out the crime itself. Whereas, you know, when they when they took over the site, uh, they were the only ones who were keeping the site running. Uh, and uh, uh, therefore, every download of child porn was a crime that uh, they were intimately involved in. I think that's the distinction. Yeah, I just don't see any other way that they would be able to actually round up users of those types of websites. And, you know, you've got to think of the deterrent effect here. Uh, if they are not able to do this, then it means that anyone in the world can visit these types of hidden services with complete impunity from the FBI. And, you know, it is uh, the FBI globally that is known as to be the most aggressive uh, law enforcement agency when it comes to um, going after these types of sites. So I just don't really see what it is that people who are complaining about this would rather see happen. Yeah, well, fair enough. Uh, um, Michael, any thoughts on that? No, you know, the people who are complaining about it are the people who don't want the FBI to use the network investigative technique. They're not really, they don't really care about the child pornography aspect. Yeah. So, the, you know, it's the, it's the defendants themselves and it's the, the, um, the privacy groups that really are against the, the NI, the, the NIT, not not the use of it in a child porn case. And, and, and their, their basic uh, position is if it's bad for the FBI, it must be good for privacy. Let's think of a way in which we can get in their way on this too. Um, at least that's, that, that's, that's my view. Um, uh, speaking of privacy uh, um, crazies, uh, uh, the CNIL in France, the Data Protection Authority, uh, uh, famously said we want to be able to uh, uh, have our decisions about what can and cannot be found on the Internet apply not just to French uh, um, uh, domains, uh, not just to European domains, not just to requests coming from Europe, but everywhere in the world, we are the censors of the world. Uh, um, Google has, uh, uh, thank goodness, decided to appeal that to the French courts. I, I would only give them a 50% or less uh, chance of prevailing, but uh, since it was probably close to zero at the Canille, uh, hopefully there'll be a, an intelligent uh, ruling from the French courts with a little bit of uh, humility mixed in. Uh, 
Oh, and uh, speaking of uh, uh, the uh, child porn uh, uh, case uh, um, and people who just hate the FBI, uh, I note that uh, 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 Ron Paul and Ron Wyden, uh, uh, abetted by two uh, uh, senators from Montana and Tammy Baldwin from uh, Wisconsin, have uh, filed legislation to overturn Rule 41 on which uh, uh, most of the FBI's remote hacking uh, uh, would uh, depend, uh, would allow them to uh, get one order allowing them access to a uh, uh, a computer somewhere else uh, and then to use that without localizing the order in every single jurisdiction where it's trying to uh, to hack a particular, say, bot. Uh, um, but it's not... Yep. It's not possible, is it, Stuart? To, I mean, it's just not possible to localize an order for a Tor hidden service. I mean, any right. cursory five minute look at this, it's not doable. You can't say, uh, you know, this court from Virginia is authorizing the use of NIT on a server located in California, uh, that can only apply to, you know, visitors from this state. Because until you use NIT, you don't know where the user is. I, 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 absolutely. You know, I, so it's just, that's why I, I, I'm. This is this is called the Stop Mass Hacking Act, but uh, I, it it really is uh, um, a uh, an effort to to make it impossible to do 21st century law enforcement. Uh, uh, so we're going to have to do mm. this one way or the other. I, I the likelihood that uh, that these senators will be able to stop this. Uh, they they only have until December. Uh, getting anything through Congress, uh, especially in an election year, is very difficult. Uh, I, and uh, uh, my sense is there are a lot of members of Congress who really don't want to say yes. I, I was, I'll stand with uh, all those child porn defendants. Uh, so my guess is there's nothing happening here. Uh, Ron Wyden, Wyden and Ron Paul are exactly who you'd expect to have on this. Uh, I'm a little disappointed in uh, uh, Steve Daines from Montana. But otherwise, these guys are are pretty much the usual suspects and out on the uh, the fringe. Well, the the FBI isn't exactly helping itself here, though, is it? <laughs> you know, I mean, they they if they actually did provide some decent transparency uh, transparency into what NIT is and how it works, I mean, it would probably do some you know a, a, a fair bit to um, calm the situation. I think they sort of got blindsided by this one because they've been using NIT. For a decade, yeah, you know, or something, you know, I mean, maybe not a decade, but a long time. So it's just, I, I don't think they were prepared for this, and I think the Apple versus FBI thing has sort of put them on the back foot and uh, made them susceptible to to attacks around this. Yeah, I I, I, I completely agree. Uh, their their first reaction is always, we can't disclose this because people will then uh, uh, Mozilla will 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 make it impossible for us to use, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, so they are they are worried about that, and uh, the problem is that that also costs them among people who might be persuadable if they understood how it's being used. Well, they don't need to disclose the actual vulnerability that's being exploited. They can just disclose the payload. And, you know, they're just, they're being needlessly, um, they're, they're, they're obfuscating stuff they don't need to obfuscate, basically, was, was kind of my point. But, uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> so um, the SEC and um, uh, I probably in part influenced by all the mess in SWIFT has, has said uh, – 
we think cybersecurity is a really, really important thing. They're sort of late to the party uh, on this. Was there anything else beyond them saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, this is 2016. We ought to say something about cybersecurity uh, involved here, or uh, uh, should people actually spend time with the uh, the document? No, I think that this is this is – more of actually the same that we've heard from the from the SEC. This was Mary Jo White um, addressing the Investment Company Institute kind of annual meeting uh, last Friday, and she was going through kind of a roundup of of major issues. Um, and then in speaking about the future, she mentioned um, a couple of issues, um, including a basket of use of technology and service providers, in which she made this statement. Um, about cybersecurity being, uh, you know, one of the greatest risks facing the financial services industry. She doesn't spend a lot of time on it, and the the time that she does spend is really restating what the SEC has already said in um, in guidance that they've that they've mm-hmm. given out, um, that they expect people to 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 do the basics, and that they are going to take enforcement actions against at this stage um, those who are. Who are clearly and kind of egregiously falling so below the line. I sort of expected by now they would have brought actions. They've been saying for a long time you need to disclose, and obviously there have been lots and lots of disclosures of breaches uh, um, and indications that uh, foreign governments are in systems for long hauls. Uh, you would have thought that the SEC would say, "Well, you knew that." A year ago, where's your disclosure to shareholders? Well, I think that, that, um, yeah, it's interesting. They are not yet at that phase. Yeah. Um, they are still focusing on kind of the, the, that same the kind of wagging. Yeah. And, <laughs> and what we saw from other, the other, um, enforcement agencies before they moved on to, to, yeah. you know, the different things they moved on to about let's first go after the people who are most egregious. I would not be surprised to see the SEC and go, go in that direction, but they seem to be stepping deliberately down that path. Well, I want to I want to turn to uh, uh talk to Patrick about Swift and some of the other uh, uh issues we face, but I can't resist my talking about my weekend project. Uh, I I ran into I heard for like the third or fourth time that the uh, uh ECPA reform bill that passed uh, more overwhelmingly than the decision to declare war on Japan um, in the House and is now waiting in the, the Senate, gets rid of the rule that you can use a subpoena for uh, email that's over 180 days old. And people have started to say routinely, oh, that's because in 1986, when those idiots wrote that stupid law, they just thought that if it had sat there for more than six months, it must be abandoned. And I remember thinking, where did they get that? I don't think that's a, no, I was around in 86 and I, I think people instead were trying to apply the basic rule that said, uh, at some point it becomes just a record you have left with a third party and we can subpoena records you've left with a third party. So I went back finally to the legislative history and there it was, uh, in black and white. Uh, the House, uh, uh rep- Judiciary Committee report says, um, we think 180 days is a, an appropriate time to decide that uh, uh, if you've left it there that long, you're just storing it with a third party, and the usual rule for third parties is subpoena. Um, and so 
and nothing about abandonment. Not, and, and so I actually started poking around to see what had happened, where, where this came from. It turns out some guy, David Kravitz, writing for uh, Wired magazine in 2011, just made it up. Just stuck it in, said, oh, they must have considered it abandoned. And uh, it just spread like a meme. Uh, uh, most embarrassing of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Committee repeated it. Nobody is citing anything. Uh, uh, it, over and over again, you've got people saying that uh, without any citation. Uh, EPIC says it. EFF says it. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the ACLU, actually, the ACLU is my favorite because the ACLU says it and realizes they ought to have a citation, so they cite to Oren Kerr, who's been on this uh, uh, program before, uh, but he doesn't actually support the, the proposition they're citing him for, right? Uh, so I think that makes them doubly at fault. Uh, um, and, and, and most recently, then the New York Times uh, uh, said it. So I have made it my business to tweet them all. To ask them to uh, uh, to correct their error, uh, and I'm sure that the Huffington Post and Motherboard and all of the people who screwed this up will be, uh, you know, leaping to correct this error. But it does it does kind of tell you? Um, there's I don't think this was a deliberate lie. I think this was just too good to check. Once they had somebody who had said it, once Kravitz had said it, everybody just wanted to believe it, wanted to believe that they were so much smarter than the people in 1986 and that they, they could just dismiss this whole idea out of hand and and, and get uh, overwhelming unanimity uh, to to get rid of it. Uh, but it's, sort of, it's based on a falsehood, uh, not a lie, but a falsehood. Uh, it's kind of remarkable. You're going to institutionalize yourself into this role of, you know, well, what happened back in 86? I, I Go know. ask he's Baker. Kind of he's, in the, he's in the basement. Go ask Baker. Well, I, you know, I tell people sometimes one of the advantages of being this old, and I noticed this when I was younger and, and I was talking to older people, you can talk about historical events. And and people are a little vague about whether you were there or not, right? Uh, you know, it was a smooth Hawley terror. Let me tell you how bad that was. You know, I, uh, and when Harding, the Harding scandal, Teapot Dome, it was just terrible. You know, I, I nobody really quite remembers exactly how far back you might go. So maybe I will start playing this role yeah, exactly. all the way back to the founding of AT and T. I've got I've got the word. Uh, all right. I, uh, so that's my diversion for the week. Uh, um, just just before you. Uh, just before you continue from your diversion there, Stuart, I mean, it does seem like, uh, you know, this, this new act that uh, is designed to give people's emails more privacy. I mean, the idea that emails were so easily available um, does seem to be pretty massively out of step with community expectations. I mean, wouldn't you agree? Is, is it really that important that the, the origin of that um, particular quirk, uh, that journalists got it wrong? I mean, regardless of how it got there, it's a, it seemed like a pretty crazy idea. So I I I, I don't disagree with you that um, getting the contents of our emails is a pretty big deal, and and requiring probable cause and a warrant is not the end of the world. Although you would think it was if you asked talk to the SEC or anybody who has regulatory uh, uh, subpoenas to to get this. Uh, uh, but I you know. That's a perfectly reasonable basis to, to argue for the bill. But to say you should pass this bill because the people who wrote the original law are complete idiots and didn't know what they were doing is wrong. Uh, 
they were they were trying to accommodate a rule that is the rule for almost everything else, which is if you trust a third party with your data, then the third party can give it up on the basis of a subpoena. Uh, and Congress has to write exceptions. Sure, to sure, that. but I mean. Hotmail didn't exist in, in 1986, right? So, I mean, surely, surely the core of the argument, which is that a law introduced in the 80s had, has had unintended consequences for laws now. Now, regardless of whether you say, oh, that's because the people who framed, you know, that law were complete morons or whatever. I mean, the point still stands that this is a 30 year old bit of legislation that has no place really in the 21st century. If you'd ask the average person on the street in the United States, right? So I, like, does it really matter that's, so that, much? That's why it passed, I, uh, for sure. Right? Uh, but I do think there's there's a difference between, and this is partly just uh, the, the aggravating way that the tech community argues stuff, which is uh, we should win because we're smart and you're not. Uh, and that's uh, the the argument that people assumed your email was abandoned if you left it there for six months is is sort of stupid and it was probably stupid in 1986 and and so there's this kind of enthusiasm for painting your opponents as stupid that is you know one of the real faults of uh, the policy arguments that we get from the from Silicon Valley. It's not you know it's perfectly within bounds to say nobody had cheap storage in 1986 um, and it's cheap storage that has enabled us to keep our emails forever uh, uh, and now that we have cheap storage we ought to accommodate that by giving protection to the uh, content of the data. That's a, a completely reasonable argument but it doesn't win in that sort of devastating, uh, in, you know, in your eye, uh, way that's saying, look at those bozos, they thought it was abandoned. Um, and that's, uh, that's the, the, so you're annoyed, I you're annoyed that their tactics are successful. <laughs> ah, well, partly that, yes, partly it's that, but partly it's that, uh, you know, they're arguing from false premises. Uh, if they argued, they'd probably still win if they argued from, uh, uh, from the truth. Uh, and I think it's important that they, be pressed to argue from the truth because that makes the law enforcement position, even if you disagree with it, seem more reasonable. And their desire to treat law enforcement's arguments as contemptible and uh, brain dead uh, is part of my objection to uh, the way Silicon Valley is approaching these cases, these questions. Um, but wouldn't, anyway. it, wouldn't it be a wonderful world if these things were argued on the merits of uh, truth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and having written my share of <laughs> tweets that uh, um, didn't have room for nuance, I uh, I, I can understand uh, how difficult that is. So let me ask you about these swift uh, intrusions. We now have three, right? We've got this Ecuadorian bank that it turns out all this time has been suing Wells Fargo, saying you should never have allowed the people who had access to our swift uh, credentials to send uh, a bunch of money abroad. Uh, uh, that's Three swift intrusions. I don't know that we know much about the Ecuadorian intrusion. The others, there's a lot of talk about how uh, much they resemble um, uh, North Korean tactics in the Sony case. Uh, uh, do you have a view on whether the uh, North Korea is starting to look good for these intrusions? Uh, look, I tr I've tried to not really go down that path with the attribution because I saw something mentioned about, oh, you know, there was a bit of malware that was common with the Sony thing, but, you know, that's a pretty weak starting point. Um, you know, the only reason 
that I took the North Korean attribution on the Sony hack seriously to begin with is that it was the NSA very firmly stating that case, which is not really something they're likely to do, simply because it's such a weird claim. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Like, if you're going to make something up, that, that seems a odd <laughs> thing to make up. And they were very firm. If they were going to make it up, they, sure if, they, um, if they were going to make it up, they would have blamed Snowden. Yeah, exactly, right? So, um, I, you know, that, that seems solid. But, like, you've you got to understand that, you know, with these types, this, this was a sophisticated, this is a sophisticated group, whoever's doing this. And there is a Chinese connection. Um, now, whether or not that means that there's some groups who might be associated with or know maybe some of the guys who parts of the Sony thing was outsourced to, like, this stuff isn't, you know, it's not like you have an org chart for these types of hacks, especially with countries uh, like, you know, I'm thinking Iran and North Korea, countries that are scaling up their capability. I mean, you were around when China was doing the same thing sure. and, um, you know, that's what they do. They start co-opting people. They start giving them a little bit of immunity over here so that they can help the government with things over there. But I think the thing about the SWIFT thing that, that makes it so very interesting is um, it really reminds me of something that um, that Dan Gear, who's now um, uh, Chief Security Officer of uh, InQtel, he said this to me in an interview in 2008. He said that uh, uh, security used to be I'm okay, you're okay, and the internet is a problem. Okay, and that was the, that was the problem statement. So you mm-hmm. had organizations like Swift come up with this idea, well, hey, we'll just set up a private network, and then we don't have to worry about all of the horrible things on the internet. But as Dan pointed out in part two of that quote, the problem is not, I'm okay, you're okay. The problem is, I'm okay, I think. I have to assume you're owned, and the internet makes this worse. <laughs> and Swift was, was designed as a private network uh, you know, the idea being that every every institution would have squeaky clean lands, and we don't have squeaky clean uh, squeaky clean lands uh, in in the 21st century. The fact is, bank networks are just like any other network, uh, and if someone's determined enough, they're going to get on your land, they're going to sniff your Swift credentials, they're going to spend a bit of time looking at how you format messages, um, and there is a group out there right now, and I'm guessing it's one or two groups, and they're having a great old time. Oh, uh, right nice. now, uh, expelling money from Swift. I mean, ten, tens of millions of dollars have, have gone missing through this, and we are going to see a lot more of it this year. This is this is um, this is a big deal. Yeah, I I completely agree. They they have they're 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 in the most secure systems that uh, the institutions have, uh, and they are there. They've taken up permanent residence, and they know all of the tools that are being used to try to find them, and they've figured out uh, ways around them, uh, which means that they can do whatever they want subject to, you know, you know, typing the names of the institutions they want to stuff, send stuff to, uh, uh, properly. Uh, uh, so I, I completely agree with you. And, and this is sort of the last bastion, uh, and the most troubling one, uh, because mm. once this is down, um, there's no way to hunt these guys except on networks that they're on. Well, I mean, you catch them, you know, you're going to have more luck catching them when they start moving the money around, right? Uh, that's, that's, I mean, of the billion dollars they tried to transfer out of Bangladesh, they wound up scooping up 81 million is unaccounted for. But that's still a very decent payday. Now, even if, um, you know, okay, so they they were 92% unsuccessful. But do you think that's going to stop them? Because they were detected, they still <laughs> right. got away with eighty-one million dollars. You know right, I mean? and 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 they were kind of detected. If they get caught on the network. Yeah, they they they're only kind of it detected. It simply doesn't matter if they get caught on the network. Yeah, 
so they right because they can be tossed off and they can get back in if they've done any kind of uh, preparation. Well, they can just go to the they can go to the next bank, Stuart. They can go to the next bank. There's plenty of banks out there with um, Swift Gateway access. Do you know what I mean? And with Swift Gear and most of the middleware that interfaces with this stuff. Uh, if you'll excuse me, using one bad word. Uh, on, on your program, it is the, uh, what I call enterprise Java shitware. It is the worst of the worst of, uh, corporate software. And, um, this is gonna be, you know, unless, I, I'm guessing there's a lot of law enforcement research, uh, uh, resources, uh, going into this, but, um, you know, if these people don't get caught, I think we're gonna see them running riot for at least the next one to two years. And, you know, as you say, once you've got attackers, at this level, I mean, Swift is kind of important, you know. Yeah. Once you've actually got people being audacious enough to start messing with the system that is responsible for sending money around the world, I mean, can you think of a better target? I mean, what, what, why is it that here we are in 2016 and we've got people able to just break into a bank and start sending their money around? It's crazy. Yeah. This is why I think the North Koreans actually do look good for it because uh, they have plenty of resources. They've got absolute impunity at home uh, and they need the money. Uh, uh, so I'm guessing that, uh, yeah. uh, that, that it's them, but we'll see. Uh, um, you know, if there's one thing that will unite uh, um, the power brokers in every country, it's wanting to hang on to their money. Uh, so uh, this, uh, you know, if, if we ever wanted to have a, Global sanction on uh, cybercrime. Uh, this kind of cybercrime is most likely to. Uh, uh, to and the reaction it. has been swift and, and meaningful. I mean, you know, we uh, risky business kind of got the jump on this a bit early. There was some excellent um, reporting out of Reuters uh, that I just, you know, just happened to catch my attention. And the more I looked into it, the more I realised that this was going to be a thing. And watching it just completely blow up over the last month and watching, um, you know, banks in the United States freaking out about it. You've got the uh, Reserve Bank in whatever whatever it's called, the Central Bank of uh, England, reaching out to its institutions saying, we really need to look at this. So we are seeing action, but this comes back to that point earlier. We have a resource shortage. You know, you can have all of the motivation to fix something. You can have all of the risk in the world, but if you don't have the people to actually fix this, where does it leave you? you so, know? so I think the way that this plays out, we need to watch this very closely because this could be a, you know a real watershed moment i think for uh, for information security so i i was going to ask you how what you thought of cybersecurity but i think i know it sucks uh, and it's getting worse not better <laughs> uh, so let me yeah. let me ask um, is there a way out of this wilderness you've kind of suggested uh, we need a massive retraining of people who would like uh, uh, a new profession uh, and um, uh, that certainly makes sense and the thing I love about uh, cybersecurity is everybody I deal with is self-taught uh, uh, and so no one should worry about credentials in this area they should just go teach themselves and jump in um, but do you really think that that's enough? Uh, if we had twice as many people doing cybersecurity in institutions, we'd have, let's say, a quarter of the cybercrime, but that's still too much, isn't it? Well, this is the thing. We're not going to be able to scale up resources um, to make this. But, I mean, uh, so one one company out of California, and a, a disclaimer, they are actually one of my sponsors and advertisers uh, of my podcast, but uh, Bug Crowd are interesting, right? So these guys have taken... The idea of security testing and instead of um, you know mostly security testing is done as a um, uh, as a per hour engagement model right and these guys came along and said well hang on 
what about if we put the apps into a system and then let people try to hack them and we give them prizes based on the best vulnerabilities they find? I mean, that in a nutshell is BugCrowd's business model and it's been tremendously successful. So that's one area where there's been some, some success in allocating the existing resources within the industry much more efficiently, right? So approaches like that are going are gonna to help. Um, but ultimately, I think we're just going into a world where we are going to wind up losing more money to criminals. Um, it really is as simple as that. I think we need to start rethinking certain transaction models. I mean, one of the reasons there's such a rush on in the United States to capture MagStripe data at the moment is because you guys are finally switching over to chip and, uh, well, chip and signature for you. But that's a, that's a simple technology change that's going to make quite a big difference um, in the United States. So I think we need some... Some signature, uh, some uh, uh, sorry, uh, some technology changes um, combined with some, you know, fresher approaches to how we allocate resources. But I honestly don't know where this is going to go. I've been reporting on information security full time for 15 years, and it sort of feels like those of us who've been around that time, uh, which you know, it's a short amount of time. It's a decade and a half. Um, but and yet, um, you know, the, the the changes that we've seen in that time. Uh, have been substantial. And there's been a whole bunch of us saying, you know, if we don't get on top of this soon, we need to slow down, we need to think about what we're doing, uh, otherwise we're going to have problems down the track. And we do now have absolutely massive problems. But And yet the world still turns, Stuart. That's the thing. The world still turns. I think um, things like this uh, SWIFT thing, they're very significant because they go to the core of, um, you know, undermining SWIFT is undermining global money transfers, which is a very big deal. And then we've got the control system stuff, that's a big deal. And then we've got, we sort of live with consumer thought now. Um, but where, where this is going to end up and how we're going to get on top of it, I just do not know. Well, all right. Uh, uh, Patrick, I'm afraid I don't know either, and that, that sort of bothers me uh, uh, that, we, uh, that we're going to treat this as the equivalent of uh, shoplifting or pilferage, uh, or uh, mm. uh, as President Obama has said, uh, we, can, we, can, we can take a hit uh, and uh, we're not going to overreact. Uh, uh, that, that works until it doesn't, until the, the hit really hurts. Uh, um, so uh, do you think we'll have a, uh, let me ask you this last question how long before a significant financial institution fails because all its money has been sent to moldova well thankfully that will never happen because uh you cannot exfiltrate the money you just can't exfil the money so it's going to be more like um a thousand paper cuts than a decapitation um i don't think we'll see that i think we'll just see um financial institutions around the world if this swift stuff is taken to its logical conclusion it'll be similar to credit card fraud they will manage to they'll, they'll eventually manage the risk right which means the world keeps spinning it's spread out over a lot of financial institutions it's not the end of the world the only problem with that though is who's getting the money right and this has always been the problem that i've had with banks just saying yeah well you know we're losing a couple of million here uh, but it's no big deal. It's cheaper than, you know, introducing the controls that would prevent the fraud. Um, but who is it that's getting those, you know, few minute, few million dollars? They could be quite, um, dangerous people. Um, so yeah, how that all winds up, what sort of calculations get made? I, I don't know, but I, I don't think we're going to see a financial institution fail, um, as a result of their money being transferred out. I think you could, um, uh, probably cause a financial institution to fail by just getting into their networks and wreaking havoc so that their customers can no longer use their services. You do that often enough and repetitively enough, that's going to be a problem. Uh, and the other, you know, sort of big 
event that I would be concerned about is um, a, a, a serious control systems attack, simply because the people who currently have the skills to do those attacks just aren't motivated to do them because, you know, as we know, attribution is not actually that difficult. Um, if North Korea did make a dam go boom in the United States, that would be very bad for North Korea, I would imagine. It would be something that would demand a response and could not be ignored. Um, but with the rise of these chaotic actors uh, like, you know, Islamic State, I kind of worry that if, if an organisation like that could get the skills together to perform an attack like that, then they absolutely would yep. because they are not... Uh, they are not, you know, they, they have no, there's no further consequence to them. They're already at war with everyone. So uh, I think, honestly, the financial fraud is just going to play out more money in the hands of bad guys. And um, in terms of control systems, which is the other big one that I, I'd keep an eye on, you know, we'll be okay with that as well, simply because we don't have anyone motivated to, to do something horrible. But with the rise of chaotic actors, we could really see that change. And I don't want to see that change at all. Yep. So I, you, you've, I thank you for giving me the title for this episode. It will, we'll, we'll call it the paper cut decapitation, uh, uh, episode. Um, uh, <laughs> but, I, uh, uh, Patrick, thanks so much. This was a, a very insightful, uh, exchange. We really appreciate it. Uh, that's Patrick Gray of the Risky Business Podcast. You definitely should, uh, uh, subscribe to that. Uh, also, Michael Vadis, Alan Cohn, thank you. Uh, uh, if any, uh, if our listeners has feedback, uh, send it to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave us a review on iTunes or other aggregators. Uh, I, I, Patrick, I, I should ask if you have any upcoming speeches, papers, uh, other than your podcast uh, appearances that uh, you want to plug for the audience. This is a good time to do it. Nothing uh, nothing planned at the moment, uh, I'm afraid. Yeah, just uh, just punching out the show every week and uh, focusing on that. And you've been doing this from like wherever you happen to be, right? You're uh, you're in Brazil for the next couple of months, but uh, before that, uh, were you doing it from Australia? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I live in Australia, but I live in a, a very small town on the east coast of Australia, which is um, quite idyllic. So yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty much how I wound up doing what I'm doing. <laughs> it's because I could, uh, really, because I could do it from where I was. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a nice trick. I, I thoroughly recommend it. Well, uh, among other things, those are uh, people who are thinking about changing uh, uh, careers. Uh, uh, it holds out the prospect that you can have a podcast uh, with advertisers who pay you to live in uh, idyllic spots in Australia. Um, so uh, un- uh, be sure to start uh, work on uh, your Metasploit les- uh, lessons right away. This has been Episode 117 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we're going to have Angelus Karamaitis, uh, who's a professor at Columbia and a DARPA program manager talking about uh, where he thinks uh, cybersecurity is and can be going. Uh, Kevin Kelly, the author of The Inevitable, a futurist who has been writing uh, uh, about the future with enthusiasm uh, uh, for longer than probably has been justified uh, uh, by the actual facts, but uh, it'll be fun to talk to him. Uh, And Congressman Will Hurd, one of the most uh, cyber savvy of our congressmen and uh, um, uh, the chairman of the uh, uh, Cyber Investigations Committee uh, in the House. Uh, um, we hope you'll join us once again for all of those and other episodes as we provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 